You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. Um, If you would, though, if you have your Bibles, and I do hope that you have them, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 6. We are going to look at verses 1 through 18 this morning. Uh, We have been going through a sermon series, if you haven't been able to to be with us. uh, We've been doing a sermon series on Jesus' teachings at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus came to announce the arrival of his kingdom, uh, and where he came to tell us what life in his kingdom uh, would be like. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6, and let me pray for our time. Father, just thank you for giving us so many wonderful guides when it comes to living the Christian life. You know, you have not left us without instruction when it comes to what we should believe and how we should behave as your followers. Uh, I am especially thankful, Father, for the Sermon on the Mount. It is a mountain of truth contained, uh, containing Jesus's words, and, and it has so much uh, that it can offer us, Father. We could spend years studying this. Uh, and, and even though we, we only have a, a small amount of time today, I pray that you would just let us glean some life-giving, life-sustaining wisdom uh, and hope from this passage today. Show us how it can all uh, point our hearts in your directions and just keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Um, I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If I said the phrase, uh, the secret life of, uh, what might come to mind? I want you to think about that. Uh, Some of you might be thinking of of a movie. Uh, There are several movies where that is part of the title. Uh, There's a children's movie that came out a few years ago called The Secret Life of Pets. Uh, and, you know, just a kid's movie, uh, but it, it's about these pets that have an entire separate life that they live that kind of goes on behind the scenes uh, when their owners are away at work. Uh, or when you talk about somebody having a secret life, others might think of something that's kind of dark or sketchy, you know, like somebody having a secret affair or somebody participating in some pretty shady, off-the-record business deals. Uh, But in our passage today that we're going to study, Jesus is actually going to talk about the kind of secret life that his followers should have. He's actually going to talk about several categories of our lives that actually should be lived in secret. Uh, in these verses we're going to study, he's going to speak a lot about things like giving and praying and fasting. And, and from these categories, I want to draw out three principles for you uh, that can teach us how to serve in secret rather than for show. So so this morning, we're going to talk about the secret lives of Christians and how in many ways we really should be serving in secret rather than for show. Uh, Because if there's something, uh, there there, there really is something that's just kind of innately wrong with us as humans, uh, that whenever we have an audience around us, uh, we are tempted to put on a performance 
Like when we pray and we know that others are listening, it's so easy to make our words sound more elegant and flowery uh, than they should, rather than just saying what's on our heart. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't ever pray or serve in public. You know, Jesus is not going to tell us that we need to live like hermits and just, you know, live in a shack somewhere in the woods by ourselves. Uh, But he is going to say that we need to be careful about the things that we say or do in public. And that if you uh, only ever want to pray or give while others are watching, that's probably a sign that you're pursuing uh, a life of selfish pageantry uh, rather than sacrificial piety. So I want us to to walk through and look at three principles from this text. It's a big text. I'm not going to read it all at once. We'll just look at it kind of progressively as we go through. But let me go ahead and read the first few verses this morning and look at the first principle that we can learn uh, about what Jesus says says about you serving in secret. So let me read verses 1 through 4 where Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is talking here about uh, generosity, and he's saying that we should be a people who are secretly generous. And there's a principle that we can learn from these opening verses, uh, and it's that Jesus is trying to show us that as Christians, we gain through giving by giving in secret. As Christians, we gain through giving by giving in secret. I know when you think about giving, we we often think about loss, uh, not gain, If you're draining your bank account to give to the church or to others who are in need, you know, that money in your account is obviously decreasing, not increasing. So financially, you might call it a loss, not a gain. But Jesus says that when you give sacrificially and and secretly, there is actually gain to be had in our generosity as Christians. Uh, Jesus gives this metaphor in this passage about hypocrites who sound the trumpets uh, when they are giving to others on the street so everyone can hear what they're doing. And I don't think that Jesus was actually talking about uh, literal trumpets. We don't have any historical evidence for that. Uh, But he's using a metaphor that we still use today. He's talking about people who like to toot their own horns. And Jesus is saying that if that is you then you may get a pat on the back by others, you know, thanking you for your generous donations. But that is the only reward that you're going to get. Don't expect God to give you a pat on the back as well and let you into heaven just because of the money you have given. 
You know, you may or uh, may not remember this, but several years ago, there was a big thing on Facebook called uh, the uh, Ice Bucket Challenge, and it was a way to raise money for a disease called ALS. Um, so what would happen with the Ice Bucket Challenge is that somebody uh, would tag your name uh, in a video on social media, and you were supposed to commit to doing one of two things. You either had to donate money uh, that would fund uh, ALS research, or if you couldn't afford to give money or if you just didn't want to, uh, then you had to film uh, a video where a bucket of ice or ice water would, would be dumped on your head. And now, I just want to make it clear that there was nothing wrong with the ice bucket challenge. Um, it actually did uh, raise millions of dollars, so it was very successful in helping raise money for some much-needed medical research. Uh, but there have been some very interesting studies that were done comparing the number of people that donated money towards the cause versus the number of people that just chose to have a bucket of ice water dumped on their head. Um, in some areas, uh, it was actually determined that only about 10% of the people involved actually ever donated anything. Well, 90% chose instead to post the video uh, with the ice water. Now, I think that's actually very revealing about the human heart and about the difference between our desires to be generous versus our desires to appear to be generous. You know, there are plenty of people willing to appear generous when it came to the ice bucket challenge. You know, they liked the idea of everybody watching this video of them on Facebook or YouTube and thinking that they were a charitable and generous people. But when it came to actually giving money for the cause, you know, especially considering that nobody would even know that you gave because they only uh, filmed those who didn't donate money to the cause. So, so when, it, when it came to actually giving money to the cause uh, and not being in the limelight and not getting the recognition, very few people were actually willing to do that. Right? But that's the kind of generosity that Jesus is calling us to, the type that doesn't need the limelight. It doesn't you know, need to be liked or shared on social media. Uh, that's why Jesus says in verse 3 that when you give to the needy, do not even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. And that's the kind of generosity that we can gain from by giving in such a way that it's like your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is even doing. Where your right hand, you know, writes a check or slips some money in the offering plate before the other hand even knows what's going on. So some of the most faithful Christians in churches are those you never hear anything about. Those who quietly tithe without making a big show of it. You know, they don't need a memorial wing of the church named after them. Uh, some of the most generous Christians out there, they, they don't need to form a nonprofit foundation uh, with their name attached to it. They just quietly look for the needs of those around them. They work behind the scenes helping uh, each other out. 
And while they may not get much recognition here on earth, that doesn't mean that there won't be a reward. Because if you give and you're the only one that knows about it, then you're not really the only one who knows about it. But we're told that the Lord in heaven sees what is done in secret, and he will reward you for your generosity. In fact, we're told that he will be your reward for that generosity, which is the greatest reward that you could receive. So that's the first principle. You gain through giving by giving in secret. There's a second principle to learn, though, as well, uh, and it's about prayer. As Christians, we're empowered through prayer that are private appeals, not public performances. That's the second principle. As Christians, we are empowered through prayer that are private appeals, not public performances. Look at verse 6. Starting in verse 6, Jesus says, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask him. So what Jesus is talking about is what many people often refer to as uh, closet prayers. You know, finding some place like a closet where nobody is watching, where nobody's going to see you, uh, where you aren't going to feel the need to be eloquent in your speech. You're not going to feel this pressure to use any kind of flowery, flowery language. And again, I don't think that Jesus is speaking literally that you have to be inside like a small enclosed room, like a closet to pray. Um, but I will tell you what a great 21st century equivalent to a closet prayer is, uh, and that's praying in your car. When you're driving somewhere alone, try next time just to turn off the radio for a while. Stop listening to whatever podcasts you like to listen to. I mean, just take time to pray on your way to work or on your way to the grocery store. Just use that time just to spend some time with the Lord and pray to him. That's actually one of the great things about living way out here in the country. Uh, it doesn't matter where you're going. If you're going somewhere, you always have a long drive to get there, uh, which means that you have plenty of time to pray uh, as you go. Uh, and Jesus says that when you pray, you don't even have to think that your prayers need to be all that long. So if you're not in the habit of regularly praying, Jesus is saying, you know, don't feel like you need to sit down for an hour straight and pray nonstop. That's not what he's asking you to do. Because Jesus says that he already knows what you need even before you ask him. You know, so it's not like you're going to bring anything new to his attention. You're not going to uh, say anything that, that's new or novel or that he hasn't heard before. Uh, instead, Jesus gives you just a quick model uh, for a short and easy way to pray. Uh, it's what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, sometimes 
Uh, It might actually be helpful to pray this prayer verbatim, word by word, or other times it could be helpful just to use this prayer just kind of as a, a guide or a jumping off point to help you think about the kinds of things that you need to prioritize uh, in your prayers. But let me read to you the next set of verses here. It's going to start in verse 9, go to verse 15, uh, and this is the Lord's Prayer. Let's read, let me read that so that we can learn the kinds of things that we need to be prioritizing when we pray in secret. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So I want you to notice the pattern here that's in Jesus's prayer. It goes from praise to petition and then to protection in that order. Jesus starts with praise and only after that does he move on to petition and protection. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is just another word for holy or sacred. So Jesus is using um, intimate, personal language to speak about God. He starts off by calling him Father, and then he praises the name of the Father by calling that name hallowed or holy. And then just before Jesus moves on uh, to make any uh, requests of God or any petitions, He then first prioritizes the Lord's will over everything else. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, There are two kingdoms in this world. There is the kingdom of darkness and there is the kingdom of God. And Jesus is praying that the kingdom of darkness would be dispelled and would dissipate and would decrease so that the kingdom of God might come and take its place. And it's not until after Jesus prays all of those things, praising the name of the Lord and prioritizing his plans over everything else, that Jesus finally then moves on to bring his petitions before the Lord. So when you are praying secretly in your closet or in your car as you're going down the road, remember that. Repeat that over and over again in your mind. Praise before petition. Or or be in awe of God before you ask anything from God. Because if you ask before you adore, you're probably not going to ask for the right things. And when you don't ask for the right things, then you're just going to become bitter when God doesn't give you those things because he already knew that you didn't need those things. But if you praise God before you bring any of your petitions before him, then that love that you have for the Lord will actually change the things that you ask for. Because the more you worship and adore the Lord, the more you're going to realize that you don't really need all that much in life anyway, aside from the Lord himself. 
That's why Jesus' prayer requests are pretty simple. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also uh, have forgiven our debtors. Food, <laughs> forgiveness. That's all Jesus prays for. He doesn't write a litany of requests that are a mile long that kind of looks like a greedy kid's Christmas wish list. I mean, he keeps it simple. And then after these petitions, uh, I love that he goes on to conclude his prayer with a request for protection. I like that Jesus neither begins nor ends his prayer with those petitions or requests. Uh, He urges you to sandwich them in the middle. So they're not the first thing that you're thinking about, nor the last things that you're thinking about when you talk to God. But in verse 13, uh, he does go on to say, he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because Jesus knows, you know, it is far better for our souls if the Lord can protect and keep us from being led towards temptation in the first place, rather than if the Lord has to come in and intervene once we have already caved into sin. So, Jesus prays for our protection. And then in the last two verses of this prayer, he goes on to talk about another kind of protection. He goes back to talking about the topic of forgiveness, uh, and he says that we must be willing to forgive others their trespasses so that God will forgive us. Because if we're not willing to forgive, then God will not be willing to forgive us either. Jesus is letting us know that that praying for a heart that is a forgiving heart is one of the greatest ways that you can actually protect your heart. Because if you ever let your heart become so calloused or so hardened that we're not willing to forgive others, that likely means that we have failed to understand the forgiveness that God has been trying to offer you through Jesus. So, So start your prayers by spending some time praising God from the depths of your heart. And then before you conclude your prayers, make sure that you're asking God to protect your heart as well. And if you can, pray all of that from the privacy of your own prayer closet or your own private space like a car as a personal appeal to God, not as some public performance in front of others. That's the second principle. So we've talked about giving, uh, we've talked about prayer, but in the last block of verses, I want to look at a third principle that we can learn about fasting, and that's that our faith is fortified when we are fasting far from sight. Your, Your faith can be fortified when you are fasting far from sight. Let's see that by looking at verses 16 through 18. We're told, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but that your father... By your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. 
So again, Jesus is urging his followers uh, to fast, but to do so in secret, which was not always the case back in Jesus's day. Uh, those who were fasting often exaggerated the hunger that they were feeling, trying to make a big show of it, always looking gloomy in public, uh, like they were about to fall over or faint or something. Um, and that's actually where the word hypocrite actually came from in the first place. Uh, in Greek, originally, it actually was a word that describes somebody who is a professional uh, actor, someone who is just putting on a show or pretending. And that's what Jesus says that many in his day were doing. Um, it actually reminds me of a lot of my Muslim friends when I lived as a missionary in the Middle East. Uh, because in Islam, there's actually an entire month on the Islamic calendar called Ramadan, and Muslims are supposed to fast every day during the month of Ramadan from sun up to sun down, every day, all day. And now some Muslims do, I, I want to give them credit for that, but a lot of Muslims uh, they like to find ways to kind of skirt those rules. Uh, since you only have to fast while the sun is up, there were many of my friends in the Middle East who would simply sleep through the day while the sun was up. Uh, they wouldn't get out of bed until an hour or two uh, before sunset. And then as soon as the sun goes down over the horizon, they'd have all of these big, elaborate celebration meals planned. And they'd stay up all night stuffing their faces with food, and they wouldn't go to bed until just before the sun came back out. Uh, restaurants and businesses would actually follow suit, and they would reverse their hours in order to be closed during the day, because they wouldn't have any customers because everybody was asleep. And then they would actually stay open all night while everyone is awake. And all of that was just this elaborate plan just so people could avoid uh, having to go without eating all day. So they would have this special religious month and they could all appear pious and appear like they spent the whole month fasting. But in reality, you know, just like uh, Christians talk about gaining weight during the season of Christmas time. Uh, many of my Muslim friends would actually complain after Ramadan about how much weight they gained during Ramadan. So, so you know there is something wrong with your system of fasting if you gain weight when you're done. But if we're being honest, as Christians... Oftentimes, we really don't do much better. You know, we may not be pretending to fast when we're really not, like many Muslims do, but we're still not doing any more fasting than they are. For many Christians, fasting is a lost art. I mean, if we are fasting as Christians in America, judging by the look of most of our waistlines, myself included, we are doing a really, really, really good job of keeping it a secret. All right, we, we are keeping it top secret because most of us don't look like we have missed too many meals. But, but here's, here's what I want to focus on when, when we talk about fasting. Not only do we need to be fasting more, 
We, we also need to rediscover how fasting and praying and giving are actually all interconnected. They're not unrelated spiritual disciplines. It's not that some Christians are called the fast, others are more gifted at praying, and then others should just focus on generosity. No, all three of these disciplines should be present in the life of every follower of Jesus. Because all three of these disciplines are actually related and connected to one another. So just think about fasting for a moment. I know when we think of fasting, um, we usually think about voluntarily restricting the food that we eat for a short period of time. So it usually means you're going to go the day without eating. You're going to spend the day without food. Uh, but you can actually fast from anything. Uh, fasting is just the intentional practice of self-restraint. In any area of your life, you can fast from television, you can fast from social media, you can fast from your smartphone, uh, you can fast from going out and eating at restaurants. Uh, but, but there has to be a greater purpose behind what you are doing. Like if you just stop eating and you're restricting your calorie intake but you don't use that extra time in your day for prayer, then you're not actually fasting at all. That's just what we call a diet. So fasting and prayer actually need to go hand in hand. And so does giving and fasting as well. If you're a Christian, for example, maybe you're a new Christian, and all of a sudden you decide that you're going to start tithing. You're going to give 10% of your income to the church, uh, and you know, you're going to be a very giving person. You're going to give to others who are in need. If you say all of those things, but then you don't change any of your other spending habits, you, know, you go out to eat. Uh, just as much as you did before, uh, you know, you still buy all of those new clothes and you buy those tools that you know you're never actually going to use. They're just going to stay in the shed. Uh, if you do all of that stuff while you're trying to give sacrificially and generously, you're not going to be able to give sacrificially and generously for very long. If you're really going to commit to being generous and you're going to have to commit to a life of self-restraint and fasting from other things in your life. You can't do one without the other. Or just think about it from, from another perspective. Um, I know wives who uh, have called their husbands tightwads before, or husbands who have called their wives penny pinchers. You know, so when it comes to finances, there are those out there uh, that have a lot of self-restraint. All right, they don't spend anything that they don't need to spend. They're very disciplined, like somebody who is fasting. But what good is that discipline if all of that, that self-restraint, if there's no greater purpose behind it? If you're not using that extra money for the greater good of God's kingdom, then, then you're just being greedy. You're just hoarding that money for the sake of hoarding it, all the while knowing that you can never take it into eternity. Now, now that's not to say that people shouldn't have savings accounts. It's not to say uh, that you can't put money towards retirement. 
I'm just trying to show you how fasting and giving and prayer, they're all interconnected. None of them were meant to be practiced independently from one another. Rather, they're all made to be a part of the regular rhythms of the lives of those who follow Christ. When you have self-restraint and you, you know, are saving up your money, there really does need to be a greater purpose for that, using it for the kingdom of God. So we've, now we've talked about all these different categories, um, and we've talked about the secret lives of Christians and our need for giving and prayer and fasting in secret. Um, but something difficult to talk about when you talk about these things is an example of what this actually looks like. Because, you know, if, if you point, it's hard to point to somebody uh, because if an individual is actually really good at doing these things in secret, well, guess what? You're not going to know about it. <laughs> and if you do know about it, well, that probably means that they're not doing a very good job of keeping it a secret. <laughs> so they're, they're not going to be a great example for you. So, so instead... Let me just end by giving you the example of Jesus, who really is the best example of this that we could have anyway. If you think about his life, it's interesting to note that only three of the 33 years that he lived on this planet were actually spent in public ministry. Most of his life was just quietly spent growing up as the son of a carpenter. When he did choose to begin his public ministry, Notice that rather than begin with some big showy splash, Jesus actually went out to the wilderness for 40 days to be by himself. He spent 40 days out in the middle of nowhere, away from all the crowds, praying and fasting in order to prepare for what was to come. Even fast forward to the end of Jesus's life, the, the night before he was crucified, what was he doing? He was out again praying alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was actually putting the Lord's Prayer to use. If you remember the Lord's Prayer, Jesus told us to pray that the Father's will would be done. And Jesus later clung to that prayer himself. All right, he prayed what he preached. He was honest with God about wanting that cup to pass from him so that he wouldn't have to endure what was ahead. Uh, but, but that's not how he ended his prayer in the garden. He, he ended it uh, by going back to the heart of the Lord's prayer, saying, yet, not my will, but thy will be done. So, so we see this vibrant personal prayer life and this life of fasting uh, consistently displayed throughout Jesus's ministry. And if you want to add to that, uh, you could talk about Jesus's generosity. Uh, you don't really have to look any further than the crucifixion itself. No one ever gave as sacrificially as Christ. He gave up all of the comforts of heaven he gave up his dignity, his honor. He shed his blood. He gave up his very life so that we might have the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins. And nothing Jesus did was for show. He had an audience, but he wasn't performing for them. At his trial, he remained silent. As he was crucified, he let others mock him. 
All right, Jesus came to serve us by offering himself as a sacrifice for us. But he was a humble and pious servant, never doing anything as a performance or for show. And apart from him, all, our own, all of our own lives will inevitably drift towards the opposite, towards a life of self-centeredness. We will always desire selfishly to be the one that is in the limelight. But, but if you submit your life to Christ, if you become his follower and you let yourself be remolded into his image, Jesus says that you can break free from that cycle. You don't have to be caught up in all of the pageantry of trying to appear humble when you're not. And even though you may lose some of the limelight and the recognition of this world, Jesus offers you a reward that is far better than anything uh, that you could get in this world anyway. He offers you an eternity of life spent with him. So, So I just urge you this morning as you go, I urge you to live that kind of quiet and secret life of a Christian. Because when you understand that God is watching you from heaven, you realize that it's actually not that secret of a life at all. Right? He sees you and he will reward you for what you do in secret. Let me pray. Father, the life of a Christian really was never meant to be flashy or showy like it is in so many uh, televised sermons or the the things that we see on social media, Father, um, all throughout history, when you you have used your followers to change the world, uh, it has always been through a quiet revolution brought about by humble obedience. So, Father, I pray that we would desire and we would seek to be these kinds of Christians, Christians that sometimes don't even know Uh, don't even let our left hand know what the right is doing, but who would nonetheless honor you in our giving and our prayers and in our fasting and in all the ways that we serve you and in all that we do. Father, I just ask all of this in Jesus's holy and precious name. Amen.